From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Katie Stroud, an e-learning engineer and consultant, and the author of a forthcoming book on instructional storytelling. It's an interesting topic that she's speaking about on the conference circuit these days. In fact, she's joining me here at Learning Solutions. Very excited to have you with us, Katie. Thank you for joining us here on the Learning Circle. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm excited to share whatever I can with you. Thank you. Now, storytelling has been a personal interest area for me. I, I found it interesting to see how it's used and frequently underutilized in the learning world, which is a shame because it's an ancient form of teaching, this oral tradition. And I believe our brains are wired for story. What is it about storytelling, do you believe, that is so magnetic to us as humans? It, uh, it engages more of the brain. So if I show you a slide and I show you some instructions on this slide on how to do something, I, I use an example of meeting facilitation in some of my presentations. What happens when you're looking at that slide is a little piece of your brain is translating those symbols of letters into a language that makes sense to you and in words that, that you understand. Now, if I instead tell you a story about how Bill got a, he just got off a call with his, one of his customers, he works at a consulting firm, and the customer said, thank you for providing a consultant for this project, and, but we're, we're okay now and we don't need any more help. And then he hangs up the phone and he's a little discouraged because it's the third of a series of calls that seem to be building a pattern. But he didn't have time to think about that. He needed to run to an orientation with a new consultant that was just starting with another customer. And he gets there and the consultant is still fidgeting with the equipment and uh, not prepared to give the presentation. And then about 10 or 15 minutes of dealing with that, uh, the consultant proceeds to tell the customer everything that uh, she's going to do for them. And that made Bill step back and wonder if this is the kind of meeting that his consultants are running, maybe that's why it's not being very effective and customers are terminating that contract more than usual. So in that story, what happens is it's not just a little piece of your brain that's turning symbols into language. It's the active cortex in your brain when I talk about him going to meet up with his consultant and things of touch, things of experiencing, playing with technology. We all have those experiences. A whole lot more of your brain is being used to reconstruct this experience. And now they didn't just read a slide. They had an experience. They didn't just read something. And, and our brains remember things in terms of an experience. Yeah, we're seeing things. It's multi-sensory, what you've described. Yes. I've read fiction books where they the advice is, and don't forget the smells. Writers forget the smells. But uh, when you say those things that evoke imagery in the mind, it is very powerful. I, I believe that's true. You're using much more of your brain than decoding some words on a page, like you said. Right, and, and your brain is uh, automatically going to try to reconstruct something that it can remember. If I, if I say computer, your brain puts together a three-dimensional image of a computer. It's not 2D, it's not, it's not the word computer, 
it constructs a three-dimensional image because it needs to feel that, it needs to know all the, the pieces of that, it needs to structure it. If you look at a slide with a bunch of words on it, what you have is something like in The Matrix where Morpheus is introducing Neo to The Matrix and it's just white, there's nothing going yes. on there. And so your brain struggles to put something together that it can experience. It's trying to assign a form to something that's not there. That's not there, exactly. Yeah. Stephen King talks about, along these lines in his book on writing, he, he romantically, he describes writing and storytelling as telepathy. And he talks about how, you know, I can describe a table with a red tablecloth. And I forget what he says, what's on the table. But, you know, he makes the point that more or less, you're building the same thing in your mind and seeing more or less the same thing that I'm seeing. It's really right. amazing. And even though you're not there actually seeing a table with a red tablecloth on it, your brain is experiencing that. Yeah. Your mind's eye, as they say. Right. Yeah. So now you have an experience in your mind that you didn't actually experience in real life. And your brain doesn't, it, it does know whether or not you were there or not, but it looks the same to the brain. Have you found a lot of discussion on this point in our world and maybe writing or research that story activates more of the brain? So, so there's an article on my site, uh, something about science and storytelling and examples, and, and it just lists um, a few of the resources that I started to pull together. And there's one that links to a study that actually shows you, like, if, if I hand you a warm cup of coffee, you're going to have a more favorable image of me uh, because of that warm cup of coffee, as opposed to if I give you a, a cold cup of something, you're going to have a less favorable memory of me because of that cold feeling. And Interesting. There's, uh, if I say something like the word rough, the texture cortex, the, the, the sense of touch in your mind is activated, even though um, yeah. you're not feeling something. It's amazing. Uh, I've similarly, as I've studied um, graphic design, the idea of how words evoke images, mm -hmm. and the point in that context was how you don't necessarily need the stock imagery. Typography, the words are like the best form of clip art because you could put just the word "home" on a page, and to the viewer. That can evoke the most primal associations, feelings of comfort, images, maybe smells, all those things that are evocative of that word. So, yeah, it really is true. It, it's, I think it's something that merits our attention in the learning world. Yeah, exactly. I use an example where I talk about meeting up with my sister at a Denny's and having a warm cup of coffee. What happened in your head with those few words is you see yourself sitting in a booth across from a woman. Maybe you don't have a sister, but whoever comes to mind as a sisterly figure, uh, it's not my sister that comes to mind, but you see yourself in a booth because we've all kind of experienced a Denny's and you're always sitting in a booth, more or less, and holding that warm cup of coffee. You probably hear clanking of dishes in the background. You probably hear a smell, the kinds of smells that you smell at a Denny's. So that simple collection of words created an entire experience. Yeah, you really are building. So bring it into learning. Like We're often presenting static information versus what you're talking about. But it's really true. As soon as you, instead of it being static, like the way we list learning objectives or something, as soon as you utter the phrase, hey, I was in the supermarket the other day and, you know, dot, 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 
Uh, that, you're, you're, that word alone. Right? You're already identifying with there's someone, they're in a place, and something happened. You want to know. And st- there's a question, story questions, and you want to know what's happening. Very, very engaging. It's a very different kind of a thing. So how do we break it down? When we speak of words like drama or story, is there an anatomy to these things? Are there mechanics to it that we can identify? Absolutely, and that's what I'm trying to do. Before we we put the record button on this, you talked about how sometimes there's um, some pushback with using stories and training, and you can absolutely do it wrong, and a lot of people kind of see it as corny or like just... uh, not professional. Yeah, we're telling the, the corny icebreaker story or you, right, you know, that right. type of use. And you know what? The, the problem is with that is that you spend all this time trying to create some hypothetical situation or story or you're relying on a facilitator to tell their own stories or showing them how to do that. And there's no, there's no process for any of this and, and it, it, can, it can go bad really easily. And I was actually developing a scenario for a training that I was putting together a while back and on, on a different topic that I was having with a friend, I was talking about building a fictional character and, and creating this sort of show about this. And he's, why, why, why do a fictional character? Why would you do that? Well, because, you know, I want to make fun of this character and it's going to be silly and, and funny. And he's, but still, reality is so much better. And, and we went back and forth about it. And then um, after a while, I started thinking about it. And then I got back to this scenario that I was building for my training class. And that, that just kind of stuck with me. And then I realized, why do I need to build a fake scenario? The, ho- the whole purpose of the ex- activity was to get people to realize how much they need each other to work together, To um, that, that one person doesn't have all the information, another person might have information that they need. And then I realized... Okay, let's let's uh, let's make it real. And instead of building the fake scenario, I created what I call a scavenger hunt. And I said, okay, I need each of you guys to find somebody who's good in one of these fields: a developer, a graphic designer, uh, a technical person. And for each person that you find, get their name, their company, their state they work in, and an interesting fact about them. And what you end up walking away with, instead of just that concept that we need each other to work with, now you have six more contacts in your network, and you know something interesting about these people, and you know how you can work together to make something happen. And the more I started doing that, the more I started building this process for using this idea of story, of, of drawing people in to a living story, not just um, a fake scenario, because what's going on in the workplace is a story in itself. And instead of putting uh, stories into your training, what I'm telling people is that you need to put training into the story that's already there. I want to make sure I'm understanding in this example, was the interesting fact a way of establishing a rapport with them because there's some story way, revealed about the people that, that you've it's, met? It, it, what it does is it uh, humanizes the whole experience. We all have stories. We all come from something. There's something interesting about everybody you meet. And the more, if it's just your name is this, you work at this company, you live in this state, and you're good at graphic design. Yes. So what? If they now tell you an interesting fact, that's intriguing. And just that fact alone uh, comes with a whole backstory that's not there in that interesting fact, and yet it is. And your brain starts to put the rest of that story together. You don't have time 
to build that, but now your brain is interested in knowing more about that person because you have this little piece and your brain likes to have the whole story. It's either going to reconstruct it or seek to find more. That's true. That's true. Yeah, we're always trying to assign meaning, which is why you know you look at a, a cloud in the sky and we start to you know it would, looks like a sheep, it looks like Elvis, it looks like this or that, and where they're like your, your matrix example, we're trying to fill that void and give form to something. The best, whether it's a definition or the the best expression I've heard of the purpose of story is not it's not the typical answers you would expect when you ask somebody what is the why do we want stories why do we want books movies etc people are often thinking oh entertainment or escape or things like this but more to your point the and this was the answer that I had heard about this the reason we want stories is to achieve identification. We want to identify with another person, be they fictitious or real. And this is why when we talk about things that are character-driven and we talk about the sympathetic character, that can become so real and so intimate to us that you know, for a time we feel what they feel. We, in a way, we vicariously become them for a while. So it's, it, there is this need to identify with other people. And I, I think learning can be so much more effective if we have that element in there, because then then whatever the objectives are that that person is in pursuit of, you feel that too. It, it becomes a lot more real. So, And what is happening when you're in that other person's shoes? You're learning. Yes. Experiencing something is learning something. And that's what we're here for as, as learning professionals, as training people. We're teaching people, and that is exactly what your brain is trying to do. It's trying to learn by experiencing what's going on with other people. It's trying to have those experiences. We're trying to have those experiences for ourselves, even though we're not that person. Uh, we're trying to grow. Yes. And story is the way that that happens. And our industry has not capitalized on that as much as they should have. And, and it's perhaps been because they didn't know how. Because when I started uh, a few years back trying to figure out how to incorporate story into training because I started to see the value of that, there's nothing out there. Yeah, I think you're right. Instructional design really was a system that was formed more in the sciences than the arts. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a shame because narrative arts are the ancient way of information tra knowledge transfer. I think the other part of that is, as, and as a result of that, ISDs aren't taught that as part of the craft. It's not part of their toolbox. So I wanted to ask you about that. Do you see an authoring formula or craft that can be taught and, and repeated and applied? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm working on a book that does exactly that. As I started to look at the process for developing a story, you figure out who your characters are, you give them names, you look at what kind of obstacles they're going to overcome in order to achieve success. Uh, you figure out what that whole backstory is behind all of that. And when I started looking at that and looking at instructional design, the process for that, you have to analyze your target audience and create objectives and behavior change and all that. It's, it's different words, but the process was very similar. But the, the thing that has happened with instructional design is that 
it's uh, it's become very cold and sciencey, and there's yes. the human element just isn't in there. It can't be a bit mechanical. We're forcing people through a, a set of objectives sometimes. But to your point, the structure is very similar. So when you think about a character that has an overarching goal, and then uh, there there's actually we could call them object sub objectives or kind of like the the terminal learning objective versus the ELOs, and they when we watch a movie, someone is they have all these mini goals and complications that they go through in pursuit of that overall outcome. Yeah. So it's very parallel. And uh, this was a light bulb that had also gone off uh, off over my head. So I'm glad you're working in this area. So let me do a, a quick yeah. uh, analogy. So instructional design is getting somebody from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Instructional story design is painting everything that happens in between that. It gives them the forest to walk through or the org that it has to meet and overcome to get through there. So you can't do instructional story design without a background in instructional design because that all plays a role still. Yes. But the instructional story design is about bringing the humans into it and, and bringing that passion back into that 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 has really honestly just disappeared as far as what I've seen in yeah. the industry. Yeah, one informs the other, and you, you you can have a much richer experience when you put them together that way. Right. What are some of the methods or tools that you use to bring storytelling into instruction? There's, um, as I'm developing the book more and putting things together, there's a, a series of templates that are coming out of that. So who, how do you figure out who your characters are? In instructional design, you're looking at a target audience. In instructional story design, you're looking at all of your stakeholders, and that's not just management who wants training. That's not just the support people. In order for our target audience to succeed, there is a whole network of characters that they have to work with in order to get there. And we need to figure out who they are and what role they play, what impact do they have, what interest do they have, and um, and then we're gonna we're gonna build on that. We're gonna say um, who's the hero, and there's more than one hero. There's like a, I mean, uh, one of the things that I've talked about and, and I've put an article on my site about who's the hero in Lord of the Rings. Frodo has to take this ring and dump it into the volcano, but could he really do that without his very good friend Samwise encouraging him on when he's completely discouraged and afraid and and all this other stuff? Could he have done that without Gandor clearing the way of of obstacles? Could he have done that without uh, Legolas uh, going ahead and finding the safest passage to go? Could he have done that without Gimli fighting by their side and, and... taking out the bad guys and helping them get through that. No. So the biggest piece of the character development is looking at how much we need to work together to achieve a goal. And that I've seen that piece missing so much from um, things. Uh, occasionally, it's there, and it's just magical when it's there. There's uh, Yes. I think it's more or less um, intuitive for some people. I think it'll find its way in there because we are, whether we like it or not, we're story-based creatures. This is how we understand our world. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, there are folks who are writing instruction but can put that in there too, and they may not even be doing it overtly in their own mind. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, One of the things that I'm asked when I'm interviewed to work with people is, 
how do you get people on board? How do you get them to want to take the training? Sometimes it's mandated, and even though it's mandated, it's kind of like, is it really making a difference? And uh, so what I use is the backstory. All stories have this backstory, and authors, uh, good authors, know how to take that backstory. They have this whole uh, really complex collection of facts and things in their backstory. But what comes out in the actual story is... Yeah, it's tip of the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg kind yeah. of thing, and yet it's something that uh, draws people in. Um, for example, in in the book 1984, the I, I can't quote the sentence um, specifically, but um, it talks about the, cl- the clock striking 13. Right there is a gateway to a whole complex world of stuff that comes through in that one sentence, the clock strikes 13. Why is it striking 13? What's going on now? Now I have an incomplete story, and now I want to know what's going on. What's the rest of the story? I, I can't turn away from this, and and this is what we can do in in our own in our training. The backstory is equivalent to the values that people have that color the way they react to something, and so I talk about developing activities that expose those values. And once you start to see a pattern in what those values are you can create statements that hit those values. It hits a nerve yes. and makes people want to find out more. So that's a process, and I'll probably keep this one to myself, but there's, there's a way that I use a backstory in my sessions to people that gets their attention. Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. But it is a craft. I mean, that's that's, I think, one of the myths that has to be dispelled, even though they're... I think for people who are really great storytellers, there's a talent factor, but there is also methodologies that can be taught. So it's not so mystical that you have to wait for the muse to come or to be inspired. There are some building blocks of story that we can put into the toolbox of instructional designers. Right, and that's that's been the problem about stories and training. It takes too much time. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of creative energy. So this is about a process that tells you exactly what you need to do, and you still need to put some creative energy into that, but it also tells you how to get better at mm-hmm. this. And it's not so much about being creative. Like I mentioned, I, I was trying to create this, this whole scenario to teach this point when suddenly I realized the story is already out there. I don't need to create it. And that's what this process is all about. It's not about creating a story. It's about mm-hmm. finding the story. Yes. I was going to ask you along those lines, what are some methods to get authentic stories? Do you interview subject matter experts to find stories? Where do you look for? If you're trying to pull in authentic real-world stories, how do you go about doing that? So that backstory piece is the, the most important part of that. So what you do is you create an activity that people are interested in doing it. Like, um, tell me about the funniest thing that's ever happened to you on a new job. What was a defining moment in your life on something? Uh, So a question like this that gets people to tell a story about their experience starts to expose those stories. And it's not about the answers that they give. It's about why they gave the answers that they gave. Mm. And you're starting to look behind that. And when you look behind that, you start to see what the real problems are, where 
where the problem lies, and then and then you're going to use that to trigger reactions to get people to acknowledge that there's something that they need to overcome, and then you're going to help them do that. A lot of times when we think of storytelling, we're expecting some kind of multimedia extravaganza. Does it always require that? Can it be done simply with just text? Uh, what, what are some of the forms that it can take, the physical format? Yeah, so I talk a lot about the tools that you can use the story to tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of those are non-technical tools. One of the tools that I talk about in telling the story, uh, the character piece of the story, is donuts. Mm. Donuts. Uh, we I worked in a company where we had the product uh, manager who, um, out of his own pocket, every Wednesday brought donuts into the office. And what what he did with that... I mean, he, he sent out these funny emails, so that got people's attention. I mean, they were really silly. Like, he had a donut crime scene where the jelly middle is, like, pouring out and there's crime tape around it. <laughs> just hilarious. People would sign up for the distribution list just to get those emails. Yeah. But then he would say, you know, donuts are down here. And it's Donut Wednesday. And people would come down to get donuts. And now they're all congregating together and talking about it. And because he did this... People, he got a lot of visibility into his projects, and whenever there was a gap, there were, there weren't any gaps because people saw the gaps as they came together for donuts, and those gaps were filled so um, so intuitively that he never knew they were there. So people, he had got visibility into his team and what they were doing, and a lot of people will not spend their own personal money to do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm because the company should spend that money, right? Right. But this guy, because he did this, because everybody knew who he was, because he was successful in getting the work done, uh, because he knew that everybody needed to work together to do this, he raised his professional status. Uh, He was a a doer. He got things done, and all because he brought in donuts. Yeah, it's amazing. The answer is you can use anything. But in the technology context, I'm really struck. This goes back to the beginning of our conversation. I'm struck with words. And, you know, words can be as simple as text on a screen if it's presented properly. I'm old enough to remember these text-only computer games like Zork and Mm -hmm. things like that, where it's all theater of the mind, but you're just looking at text on a screen. And that's another aspect of this that I hope instructional systems designers will discover is that we often make excuses for text, you know, like it's inherently boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a problem in the book publishing world, but somehow we, we think it's boring here. So I, I, I think with the right craft tools, like we've discussed, we can really elevate our esteem of text and, and all the possibilities. And a lot of that could be done through story. Yeah, so um, interestingly enough, a lot of the deliverables that come out of instructional story design don't always look like a story. There's a project, a really interesting project that I worked on for a company that was a software to kind of analyze how buildings were using energy. Yes. And my job was within two one-hour sessions to get people to use this. They weren't mandated to use it. And in order to do that, we had to look at the story of what was going on. The interface was ugly, and it was overwhelming, and people just had no idea what they needed to do when they Mm -hmm. went in. It just wasn't obvious at all. And so in using the story, what we end up coming up with 
is the fact that you only need to access one thing. And within that one thing, there are about five different questions that you want to answer. And the answer to those five questions are these five reports. So we get them straight into go here, ask this question that's answered with this report. You've simplified it immensely. But if I had just created software training, you'd have started explaining the whole interface, and this button does that, and this button does that. Nobody cares. But knowing the story and the background and what people need to do, we came up with a really, we made it look really simple. The, the SME that I was working with actually said, I've never seen anybody make this look fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that doesn't look like a story at all. It looks like, okay, here's how you answer some questions right. with this software. But the story is there. It's just immersed in the story. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. You mentioned you're working on the book. When might we expect that to uh, materialize? So what I'm going to do in the next couple of weeks is put up a meter on my site where I will update it every couple of weeks to show you how I'm making progress. And one of the things I'm doing with that book to capitalize on the fact that we do need each other to work together, I'm looking for people to add what I'm calling side stories to each of those chapters to give it a sense of community. And so sometime this year. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. It's a big undertaking, I know. But wish you the best with that. I want to thank you for joining us today. This is a fascinating topic, and I wish you well with that endeavor. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed sharing what I know about this. Thank you, Katie. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.